Seth Klein is a public policy researcher and writer based in Vancouver. He's the team lead and director of strategy with the Climate Emergency Unit. Before that, he worked for 22 years as the founding director of the BC office of the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. He's now a freelance policy consultant and writer and the author of A Good War, Mobilizing Canada for the Climate Emergency, which is the basis of a lot of the questions that I ask in this interview. He talks about how the focus of the book was not always the sorts of lessons we can take from the Second World War. He was looking for reminders that we have done this before, mobilized to address a real existential threat. So as COP28 concludes, we're confronted with a global stock take that shows we are not on track to limit catastrophic climate change. Barbara Creasy and Dan Jorgensen made this clear recently in their presentation to delegates there. He also emphasized, importantly, that equity is not the opposite of ambition when it comes to the radical action necessary to fight climate change. In fact, they argued that because we can't negotiate with nature and the laws of physics, we're going to have to negotiate with and within the laws and policies that determine the scope of climate action. And we will need to do that equitably. This means we have to negotiate with each other and there are some reasonable concerns about whether COP is a place where people can meet and actually figure out ways to navigate the planet into a livable future. There's the obvious. This COP in Dubai was a fly-in conference attended by more people than any COP in history. Carbon Brief reports that over 100,000 people attended. That's an enormous amount of greenhouse gas emissions. It was also hosted by a country that is, in political and economic terms, an authoritarian petro-state, one that has a population that is 88% exploited migrant workers. The president of this COP has infamously said, on record, that there's no science that supports the phase-out of fossil fuels to achieve life-saving emissions reductions, and has brazenly used COP to facilitate investments in oil and gas that simply have to stop if we want to guard against devastating climate impacts. So was it worth it? Did this clearly very compromised COP28 achieve anything tangible to offset all of these serious issues? It's clear that it did achieve some necessary things. Canada committed to holding extractive companies accountable for their dangerous methane emissions. It established a long overdue emissions cap in Canada. It also invited 35 oil and gas lobbyists as part of the Canadian delegation. But this was the rule, not the exception, at COP28. The summit was attended by a record 25,000 fossil fuel lobbyists. That's one quarter of the attendees. But that too should not come as a shock. Energy analyst Jeremy Simons wrote recently that fossil fuels have been seen as essential at COP since its inception at Rio in 1992. When delegates described fossil fuel production use and exportation as an economic necessity, as necessary then as many of the outcomes of COP28 have been, there's a clear need for a powerful reset of the conference to protect it from fossil capital's wholesale co-optation of its potential. One of the biggest risks is that this army of oil and gas lobbyists will succeed in extending their careers and the lifespan of toxic fuels by adjusting the language of any deals, any regulations that are established. There's been a Herculean struggle over the word unabated at this COP. As Carbon Brief has explained, unabated is the term the industry wants to use for the burning of fossil fuels where resulting carbon dioxide or other greenhouse gas emissions are released directly into the atmosphere. 
rather than captured or cleaned or stored and used through energy intensive and expensive industrial processes. Those would be abated fossil fuels. Emissions reduction is what we need. Energy producers want instead to go in a senselessly destructive direction. All of this distraction and delay and investment in destruction is part of what Seth Klein calls the new climate denialism, a technique of obstruction that doesn't care in the least about the health of our environment, about human life, or about what we used to call sustainability, but now increasingly should be described as survivability. One of the curses, Seth explains, about climate action is that we don't actually feel the emergency for a period that's long enough to warrant the kind of radical action we've witnessed during wars or pandemics. The disaster is diffuse, spread out, and somewhat sporadic, so it doesn't galvanize us all at once. And just as troubling is the fact that our memories of these traumatic events tend to recede fairly quickly until they occur again. This speaks to the fact that, as Klein puts it, phase out of fossil fuels and the post-carbon revolution is not largely a technical problem. It's a problem of a lack of political will. In this context, he says that we simply don't know the answer to the question of whether we have the people who can collectively rise to the challenge, hold extractive regimes accountable, and lead us out of the path to disaster. My hope is that we do, and that that includes you. The opening of A Good War uh, talks about your experience of wildfires and the warlike response to wildfires in British Columbia. Um, you know, the, the 2023 Canadian mega fires, which to date have burned 18.5 million hectares or an area the size of France, um, have, have been a wake up call, really. I, I, I have to thank for this country. Um, you know, I guess I wanted to ask whether it's misleading to call this the new normal, as it's been called, and whether you think the fires will have a lasting impact on Canada's politics and public discourse when it comes to climate change. Mm. Um, well, first of all, thanks for having me. And secondly, uh, that expression, the new normal, drives me crazy, Scott. Um, mm. But you're right. It's frequently invoked and comes up a lot in the media. And um, I think we have to push back on it. Uh, it, this will not be the new normal. It's just a taste of what's to come if we don't get serious about confronting this threat. Mm -hmm. um, as bad as these summers have been, um, you know, in a, a 1.1, uh, warmed world, it will be that much worse than 1.3 and 1.5. And if we don't really tackle it, um, but your question is an interesting one about whether or not a summer like we've had with these fires somehow shifts the terrain. Mm -hmm. um, I sure hope it will. Uh, you know, one of the, the, the curses of climate is that um, we, we get these extreme weather events, these transformative events, but they don't occur everywhere all at once. So they fail to galvanize us all at once. But this summer was a little different. Uh, most Canadians had a, you know, whether in Nova Scotia where you are or in British Columbia where I am, most Canadians had an upfront experience uh, uh, of the climate emergency. Yeah. Um, but tragically, these these the memory of these things tends to recede uh, pretty quickly, and we're still stuck in this mode 
of um, mobilizing to put fires out, but not yet to prevent them. Yeah. Um, uh, you, I was actually just in the Okanagan a couple of weeks ago on a mini speaking tour. And as you know, that, that was interesting for me because my book opens uh, in the Okanagan uh, okay. experiencing a fire a few years ago. And, uh, you know, the, the people in the Okanagan had a summer that certainly shook them up, not just with the fires and the evacuations, but they've lost their first people. Uh, we had eight firefighters die this summer, uh, six of them in my province. Um, the first of whom was this 19 year old young woman, Devin Gale in Revelstoke, just north of the Okanagan. And then later this young man, Zach Muse, in, who was living in Kelowna in the Okanagan. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you know, I, you know, I, I kind of fixate on this, this World War II history. And I think about how in the war, Canada was a population of 11 million people, thereabouts, over a million of them enlisted, 64% mm -hmm. of them under the age of 21. And I think about, you know, who are these young people today? And I think, um, there are these young people I just mentioned, Devin Gale and Zach Muse, um, who are, again, volunteering in our collective defense. So there's something afoot. Absolutely. And, and you know, th this does kind of bring us to um, the idea of war as sort of a model and metaphor for climate action. You know, you've worked with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives for some time. Uh, your current work with the Climate Emergency Unit, it like it grows out of this intervention uh, in a good war. And, you know, in, in that book, you write that there are structural political barriers, right? That, you know, how our electoral system and Canadian federalism is sort of organized it is itself one of those barriers um, and, you know, I, before we get into some of your kind of reticence about using war as a model and a metaphor, I kind of wanted to unpack that because I think it's something that people sort of tune out, but it needs to be foregrounded. The, the problem of multi-level climate governance as like a, a necessary piece. And I guess I wondered, like, do you, do you think you've come any closer to understanding like how national unity was established across Canada's provinces, regions, as you say in the book, with their varying views and interests, and whether we can successfully achieve that kind of unity again as we move off of fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, to to name and identify these barriers isn't to uh, throw up your hands and say it can't be done. It's just mm -hmm. the... Uh, have eyes wide open about the challenges so that we can uh, overcome them. So, you know, in the Canadian context, there are a number of political barriers to change, uh, a few of which you are you articulated, and the and the one around the the quagmire of Canadian Confederation itself is definitely a uniquely challenging one for Canada. Hmm. Canada is, many would argue, the most de centralized federation in the industrialized world. And if we were a single unitary state, like, uh, you know, like England or something like that, maybe it would all be easier, but we aren't. And we're certainly getting a taste of that right now. I mean, there's no doubt that 
the federal government would probably be moving faster on climate if they weren't trying to appease and bring on board some provincial uh, leaders who are fiercely resisting this. That definitely makes this more challenging. And, and also because climate and natural resource policy is mostly in provincial hands. Mm-hmm. That said, I think this can be overcome. So first of all, as I point out in the book, that, that this is the point of the metaphor. Wars or, or, or a collective endeavor like that transform us. Mm-hmm. And things become possible that we can't imagine today. Uh, in the war, the provincial governments relinquished incredible authority to the federal government because everyone understood the task uh, at hand. Mm-hmm. And the one premier who wasn't prepared to do that got turfed, uh, Maurice Duplessis. I do propose what I think are solutions in the book to, to this quagmire, and that uh, we are now campaigning on with the Climate uh, Emergency Unit. The, the, the key piece of which is this idea of a just transition transfer. So when I was, when I was interviewing Gil McGowan for the book, Gil McGowan's the president of the Alberta Federation of Labor. And, you know, he's, he's as good as you'll find among labor leaders who get climate. Um, Gil was lamenting that, you know, Alberta needs the rest of the country to appreciate that certain parts of the country, most notably Alberta, Saskatchewan and Newfoundland, have more heavy lifting to do because they're more dependent on the fossil fuel economy. And he was wondering, well, maybe we should reopen the equalization formula and, and, and address that. And I said, you know, Gil, you don't want to do that. Equalization is messy. It's in the Constitution. It mostly works the way it's supposed to. What if instead we had a, an audacious new federal transfer to the provinces, purpose-built for this task? We'll call it a just transition transfer. Make it big, mm-hmm. like $25 billion a year, 1% of GDP. And, but, but it would have a couple twists. One from, from your usual transfers, like health and education transfers, one is instead of divvying the money up by population, we would divvy the money up by greenhouse gas emissions. So Alberta, to give you one example, is the source of 38% of Canada's greenhouse gas emissions. That's like four times their share of the population. We freeze that in time and we say, Alberta, you're going to get 38% of the money. So imagine how silly Danielle Smith would be saying no to such an offer. Uh, but the second twist is that we wouldn't actually transfer the money to the provincial governments because there's too many of them that aren't to be trusted on this, especially hers. Instead, we would have new just transition agencies in every province, jointly governed by the feds, the provinces, if they ante in, municipal governments, vitally indigenous governments to receive and deploy the funding to local climate infrastructure projects and, and, and job training and supports so that we would know and have comfort that the money was being used for that purpose. Imagine how a big audacious program like that would change the script as it is currently unfolding with respect to that con- those confederation challenges. A program like that would speak to this conundrum, which is that most of the climate infrastructure we need whether it's renewable energy or, or public transit or zero emission affordable housing, is the, the asset of that infrastructure is owned by a provincial, municipal, or indigenous government. But it's the feds who have the greatest capacity to pay. A just transition transfer would recognize all of that 
and and be purpose built to address it. Yeah, and and would um, you know speak to people like it would it would be this thing that galvanizes and mobilizes. Like you note that opposition to climate action among Albertans is often overstated. That it it might like we have to presume that it's possible for, as you put it, bold leaders to have an honest and respectful conversation with Albertans about the climate emergency and these kind of future possibilities. And it it speaks to just this kind of fundamental point um, in your work and in the work of, of a number of people that, you know, uh, the climate crisis is not just some sort of abstract scientific or technical problem. It is this fundamentally political problem, um, you know, it, and this is interesting to me because a lot of the research in the book does focus on some of the logistical challenges and just kind of like enumerating the number of heat pumps that will be required in order to mobilize uh, on a war footing against warming. Um, like in telling the story of how we will get to zero emissions and stave off climate disaster, why should our starting point be stating that the challenge is fundamentally political? How does this relate to just the pragmatism of a good war where you are talking about this fatalistic assumption that committing to disruptive shifts is a form of political suicide. In a nutshell, that was exactly the challenge I wanted to speak to when I decided to write the book. Right. Which is I was starting from an assumption, which I still hold to, which is that this is not largely a technical problem. Um, it's it's one of political will. Um, and I was trying to write a book that would encourage those political leaders who say they get the crisis to be more ambitious and courageous than they have hitherto been willing to be. I wasn't initially intending to write a whole book about World War II. That was only going to be one chapter. Hmm. But the more I dug into that history, the more it was exploding my own imagination and forcing me to look at this through fresh eyes. I had been on the climate file for years, but it was making me look at that material through a new lens. Like, oh, this is what emergency looks and sounds and feels like. And so I decided to structure the whole book around those lessons and to excavate that story as a reminder and to make a little mischief with some of these people, because the very people who um, have been reticent to be courageous in this way uh, it will shock you, Scott, as I, cause I meet with a lot of leaders now, how many of them are world war II buffs and, sure. uh, you know, they're people in that story who are important to their sense of purpose and legacy. And so when I'm engaging leaders, whether political leaders or leaders of any large institution, I'm pulling their, their story, their world war II story and reminding them of these people they so admire and then offering an invitation to say, look, here we are again, and who do you want to be? Yeah. To, to your earlier point, I do think there's a lot of political leaders. There are many political leaders who operate under the assumption that if they tell the truth about the severity of this crisis and what's required, let alone do it, they'll be politically punished. I don't believe that's true. Mm. I actually believe that enough people will reciprocate when their leaders honor them with the truth. 
And I did conduct some polling for the book uh, as part of the book's research that I think reaffirmed that. You know, you, you never know for sure in politics, but I think there is enough evidence that the public is prepared to reward those who are forthright with them about what's going to be required, even in a place like Alberta. The, 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 the heartbreak of something like the recent Alberta election is that there weren't political leaders telling that truth. And so for, for that share of the public that was ready to reciprocate, <laughs> um, it, it, it had nowhere to go to give political expression to that because neither the NDP nor the UCP we're speaking about climate, even in the context of declaring a provincial state of, an, of emergency because of the fires underway during the election. Yeah, this is the thing. Um, you know, you offer sort of some best practices. You ask pointed questions like, where's our AOC? Like, why, you know, aren't faith leaders in Canada more vocal about the fight for climate action? There are such people, but not enough of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm also offering this reminder, and this comes out of my study of both the war and our experience in COVID and, and, and climate, mm-hmm. um, all emergencies start with a period of denial, mm. all emergencies. And if you had said to Canadians in 1938, you know, the year before the war, this gang in Mackenzie King's cabinet, do they have what it takes to completely transform Canadian society and the economy as was about to happen? I'm fairly certain most Canadians would have said, no, not this gang. And they had no reason to believe otherwise because the same gang had done mostly nothing for 10 years of the depression. Mm-hmm. And if you, and similarly, if you had asked me a few months before or a few weeks before the, the pandemic uh, uh, hit us, are there people at the Bank of Canada and Finance Canada capable of pivoting in the space of a few weeks and creating these audacious new programs like the CERB and the wage subsidy, you know, I cynically would have said to you, Scott, no, there's no one home there who thinks that way. And it turns out I would have been wrong. Hmm. So you never know. what. Yeah. And this is the awkward moment in which we reside. Do we have to replace the people that we have with the people ready to be the leaders we need them to be? Or will some of the people we have surprise us and be the people we need them to be? And we don't know the answer to that question yet, but we're on the cusp of finding out. This is part of the point, right? Like that uh, whether we know it or like it or not, we are on the cusp of finding out. Um, And I think like this is a useful place maybe for us to think about your juxtaposition of the sort of like established playbook for climate denial you know, blocking climate action, you sort of juxtapose that with this idea of like a new climate denialism, or I think William Carroll calls it like a new regime of obstruction that is, you know, maybe being um, pioneered in some sense today by the the Pathways Alliance, this consortium of energy interests. There, There is something there, I think, around just trying to explore a concept of new climate denialism really in terms of like delay, like it's really in some sense, a strategy of delay where, you know, you're, you're maybe recognizing the cause, but you're accepting defeat on some level, like you're normalizing defeatism and, and refusing to give that radical hope any air, 
or airtime or credence. I think you're absolutely right. We're, we're seeing a shift from out-and-out denial to this strategy of delay and defeat, defeatism, um, where the sort of spokespeople for the fossil fuel companies have shifted from saying, we don't, it's not real, we don't need to do anything, to, oh, it's too late. Right. <laughs> um, uh, what do I mean by the new climate denialism? So old school climate denialism, which is still out there, just rejects the reality of human-induced climate change and the science. A lot of people obsess over that and they worry so much about all of the disinformation about and, and the rejection of science on the internet and so on. It is problematic, let me be clear. It, it, is, it is doing damage. But, it, but what the polling tells us is that it does remain a very small share of the population. Like, you know, 8% of the public doesn't believe in climate change. Um, I think the far more insidious uh, um, and pervasive thing that we're up against is what I call the new climate denialism, which is those leaders in government and industry who say they get the science, accept the science, but then continue to pursue an agenda that doesn't align with what the science says we have to do and, and is manifested by delay and by doublespeak, like a failure to tell the truth. Or, or And this is very much true of the federal government, my provincial government, um, and the Pathways Alliance you alluded to, which is they are trying to say we can both be climate leaders while still doubling down on the extraction of fossil fuels. And you can't. Mm -hmm. um, now, I don't know what kind of ubiquitous advertising you're subjected to in Nova Scotia from the Pathways Alliance. I know we get our share here on the West Coast. And this whole line from them, which is, you know, we're committed to net zero by 2050. So first of all, let's unpack what they even mean by that. Mm -hmm. What they mean is their production emissions will somehow be net zero in greenhouse gas terms. So yes. that alone is highly dubious that they would be able to so capture so much methane and engage in so much carbon capture and storage, the technology of which remains highly questionable, um, that their production emissions would be zero. But let's for a moment give them the benefit of the doubt and say uh, they can do that. The problem is, is that 80 to 85 percent of the of the emissions aren't production emissions. They're what we call scope three emissions. It's what happens when their product successfully gets to market and is burned. Right. Talking about end user emissions for sure. Exactly. Yeah. And I'll say that um, one of the things that I've seen recently, I think it came out just like a couple of weeks ago as an advertisement um, that's floating around online and on TV from Pathways Alliance that um, is to me insidious, especially in the sense that it's like co-opting uh, images and like uh, discourses of uh, solidarity and community mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. you know, you're, show you're showing everyday people having beers in the backyard or, you know, driving a cab and sort of just speculating on um, what needs to be done. Like an acknowledgement first and foremost that there is a crisis is how this commercial starts. And then quickly, you know, the, the language is about we all need to work together. All answers need to be on the table. And then there's this really telling section where you have a person who's like, you know, working for Suncor or something, 
pointing to a computer monitor and saying carbon capture and storage, like they've just come up with it. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's silliness, but I do think what's insidious about the silliness is that um, for people that need sort of a, a release valve on their eco-anxiety, um, it can feel like a deus ex machina kind of fix um, to see this represented to them. It certainly is more comfortable than being told the, you know, that we need to take radical action, right? That we need to, you, you acknowledge that like one of the more uh, controversial ideas in your book is something like something like rationing, like carbon rationing. But like that would be a realistic solution, certainly more realistic than these kinds of untested technologies, right? Right. Um, so you know the, those ads are uh, you know they're 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 hitting all the right notes on the values right. connection. Um, and here's the problem: advertising works. Like what we know from the polling is that these ubiquitous ads um, ha- are succeeding. That that Canadians largely accept the idea that we uh, both need to take climate action and that these companies have a plan. Um, uh, Which is why when we think about solutions, one solution that we campaign on uh, under the leadership of the Canadian Association of, of Physicians for the Environment is ban the ads. Yeah. Uh, like if it's a climate emergency, why are these companies allowed to advertise, especially when we know it works? I also think, but back to the earlier conversation about leaders, mm-hmm. um, we need our leaders to name and take on these companies. Uh, in California, they're now suing five of the large fossil fuel companies for damages and for dis- for public disinformation. Um uh, we're starting to hear the governor of California, the governor of, of uh, Washington state, naming the fossil fuel companies as, as the source of all of this. Y- you will note that from our leaders in government, you know, there's some opposition cr- uh, members for whom this is not true, but the, those in government, um, they, they don't want to name the fossil fuel companies. They still want to play nice. And, um, you say they're scared of them. Like you they say may very bluntly. Yeah. Uh, they feel economically dependent on them. I don't mm-hmm. know what the impulse is. Maybe it's just an impulse, a political impulse where you want everyone to like what you're doing. You want everyone to like you. Um, and so we're stuck in this odd place where we get these federal and provincial climate plans where the government actually, you know how they would measure success. Are, are there representatives of the fossil fuel companies on the stage with them saying that they can get behind these plans? Whereas I would say that right there is your clearest indication that you do not have a climate emergency plan. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned earlier, by the way, you know, do we have our AOCs? I'm going to tell you something I'm very biased in telling you. I'm married to a politician, mm-hmm. uh, a Vancouver City Councillor, Christine Boyle, who moved mm-hmm. the first climate emergency motion in English Canada uh, five years ago. And, um, when that, you know, her motion gave the staff 90 days, that's emergency to come up with a new city plan that would align with the IPCC targets. And when the plan was finished and she kept pressing staff to be more ambitious, 
the city had this odd protocol that they would brief Fortis BC. That's our big gas uh, utility company. Hmm. And some VP mucky muck called the city manager with his hair on fire when he learned of the plan. And that night when we were going to bed, Christine turned to me and said, okay, now I know we have a plan. Like if you're a champion, if you are a climate champion, you are not seeking the approval of the fossil fuel companies. You are, you are, you are judging your success on your ability to cause them great anxiety. Sure. Um, I think that's, you know, a, a great bar climate action um, means regulation that's going to cause people to be upset that have vested interests in in deregulation. Like that makes perfect sense to me. Um, and you know, mainstreaming it can occur if we have the right things in place. I think like one of the things you note is that um, you know the media has been pretty irresponsible uh, in terms of you know. Uh, showing a level of like moral clarity around this issue like cbc's coverage i think you rightly say is is pretty weak um and then there's also the issue of like bill c18 the online news act causing uh, you know uh organizations like the narwhal the tai rabble and others to be less visible to canadians so we should sort of resolve to continue building this oppositional kind of discourse in order to basically support um, the kinds of leaders that do have a vision for, for real climate action? Well, let's just say this about the, the, the public information need. So first mm-hmm. of all, we have, a, we have a, camp, a campaign with the Climate Emergency Unit that's also directed uh, to the CBC itself as our public broadcaster to up mm-hmm. its own game when it comes to climate reporting. The CBC has created certain standalone shows on climate, like what on earth? That's good, but it's not a solution. Like it can't be that interested people have to seek out this information. It needs to be embedded in our flagship programs, the national, Mm -hmm. uh, the world at six, our morning radio shows. And on those shows, uh, we actually did a study with SFU tracking those shows over a two-week period to see what their climate reporting is like. And there's not nearly enough of it. Um, most of it is basically reporting on extreme weather events. The CBC has gotten a little better at connecting extreme weather events to climate change, but not connecting the next dot, which is to say what's causing climate change, (laughs) the combusting of fossil fuels. That almost never happens. Um, So we desperately need our, our, and and yet there is a real problem with climate illiteracy in Canada. Like only about half the public correctly understands that the main source of global warming is the burning of fossil fuels. So we need our public broadcaster to rise to this and and do its job informing the public about all of this. And, you know, my contention is that, uh, you know, like in the war, uh, if we can have hourly business and sports reports on all of our CBC morning shows, surely to God, we can have a morning climate emergency report telling us how the battle of our lives is unfolding at home and abroad. And, and the federal government itself should have a climate emergency information agency mm-hmm. that 
either directly through advertising or in partnership with the kind of outlets that you just listed is better informing Canadians of what we're up against and what we need to do about it. Um, you know, we talked earlier about this ubiquitous advertising from the Pathways Alliance. Where the hell is the federal government? They're yeah. doing like a, it's a strange rope-a-dope reaction. Where's their advertising? Mm-hmm. And, and where specifically is their advertising explaining that it's the fossil fuel companies that are that are warming the planet? Yeah. Why, yeah, why that reticence, you know, that kind of fearfulness, um, you know, there's a degree of, you know, with CBC, I wonder in, gen- in general with sort of, um, you know, these sorts of mainstream news sources, it feels as though there's a presumption that you're going to um, exhaust an alarm and that climate fatigue is a big problem. And so we need to hit people with feel good stories and, and platitudes. It's like, uh, I don't know that that's at all helpful. Um, yeah. You know, well, it's an art. It's an art, Scott. Right. I mean, again, to my World War II analogy, the leaders we both we best remember hmm. were amazing communicators, masterful communicators who walked this careful line of both being forthright with the public about the severity of the threat while still managing to impart hope and rallying the public. Um, yeah. That's the magic. That's what we're going for. So, you know, I, uh, we actually, um, back to the CBC campaign, you could go on the website of the Climate Emergency Unit uh, and look up the CBC campaign. And what you'll see there are three sample morning uh, climate emergency broadcasts. We actually modeled for the CBC, hey, here's what a morning broadcast could sound like. like and with that, each yeah. of them, we tried to strike that balance of both making sure um, that the public was getting the bad, ugly news, but also hearing about solutions, not trite solutions, but mm-hmm. but systemic, structural, political solutions that meet the moment. Yeah, I like the observation by uh, China Meville in The Limits of Utopia that bad hope and bad despair are mutually constitutive. He says, uh, is it worse to hope or dis- or to despair? To that question, there can only be one answer. Yes, it is worse to hope or to despair. Um, meaning that those extremes are not helpful. You kind of need to, as you say, look for the magic between those two extremes. And yet it's so hard to move away from what you call this sort of false dichotomy. Um, mm. And I wonder, you know, just about the structural roots of that, that binary that we seem to fall into when it comes to political communication what causes this binary thinking i frankly don't know but in the end i don't really care i just want to plan um right this is why i think we need a federal climate emergency information agency it should Mm -hmm. be well informed by the best social science and communication science and 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 science science uh that we can muster Mm -hmm. um it should work with polling firms and it should it should craft an information agenda that works and that shifts as the terrain is shifting. Um, that's what we did in the war. We actually had a wartime information board that was increasingly sophisticated, that recognized that different messages and different messengers work for different people. Um, and, and we need it all. Um, uh, so... 
but at the moment, there is no such agency. That work is not being done. Not, you know, uh, there's some academics who, who, who do some of it um, and some climate communicators who do some of it, but it is not embedded in the architecture of government. Yeah. And this is some, you know, your book spends us a lot of time describing like a whole bunch of places or sectors of the economy where, you know, we'd benefit a lot from the creation of just crown corporations. Um, and I, like, it's interesting to see sort of uh, um, you take a really big swing there and say, like, we need more room for that kind of thinking. Like, why not just create, um, you know, something that can compete with uh, the new denialism, for example. Well, this know. is a core recommendation out of the book. Yeah. And I fixate somewhat on the need for a new generation of public enterprises, whether federal, provincial, indigenous, municipal. Um, but why do I fixate on that? Because if you're not creating new public enterprises to mass produce and deploy everything we need to decarbonize our society, the best you can do is try to incentivize somebody else to do it which is basically what the federal government is doing. They're they're privatizing climate leadership and the the keystone policies from the federal government are carbon pricing and this basket of tax credits. Now, you know, both of which will have some effect, let me be clear on that, but not at speed and scale. So they're putting these prices and credits in the window and they're hoping that somebody else will step forward and claim them and do what needs to be done. Um, you know, this is no way to prosecute the fight of our lives. <laughs> um, you have to do that by doing it. And this is the, the, the what I find so fascinating about the World War II story, and in particular, the role of C.D. Howe, the, the Minister of Munitions and Supplies. He's, he's no lefty. He's a a kind of on the right wing of the Mackenzie King cabinet. He had come from the private sector. He'd made a lot of money in the private sector. He was happy to give contracts to the private sector, but he was in a hurry. And any time the private sector couldn't quickly do what needed to be done, he creates another crown corporation to do it, creates 28 of them in the course of the war. Mm. Um, We've seen nothing of that sort in response to the climate emergency. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and this is the thing that, um, you know, is, is powerful about the story that you tell, which is a kind of, uh, you know, you, it's interesting to hear you talk about, um, you know, speaking to the hearts and minds of politicians that, that, you know, rely on World War II as this, uh, for a, a sense of possibility. And, and yet, like the story you're telling is, is one that, does sort of leverage that story for particular rhetorical, political, ecological purposes. Um, And for me, like, you know, I'll say that like you, I'm uncomfortable with the glorification of war. You talk about how you you're Canadian because your parents refused to participate in war. You, you participated yourself in the peace and disarmament movement during the end of the cold war. So you, as you say, come to this analogy uneasily and, and, you know, my knee-jerk response um, is to feel at least like using war to rally people is fraught at the very least. Um, and, and especially like, you know, Elizabeth Samet has this, this uh, research where she talks about how World War II is sort of an aberration among wars in the sense that you have like sort of the rise of a clear evil 
and then an alliance that has to halt that evil. But the thing that works about it is that, you know, climate mobilization needs to look and sound and feel different than it currently does. And so I think the war metaphor does work as long as we, it doesn't lead to this sort of seductive sense of lost greatness. But do you do you still feel ambivalent about the use of that metaphor? Do you, you know, when you engage people on these terms, speak to that ambivalence? Or do you have to be sort of more rhetorical about deploying that story of, of a certain kind of collective strength? You know, when I'm giving talks, I always uh, begin by acknowledging my discomfort with it and how unusual it is that I've landed with this metaphor. Um, but I remain unapologetic for it. Um, all of these metaphors are imperfect. This one is, of course, fraught. Um, the latter chapters of my book directly speak to uh, the things in the war that caused us shame. The poisoning of indigenous territories, the response to refugees, the squashing of civil rights, the internments. So that as we rally in the face of this emergency, we can resolve to be better and not do the things that again cause us shame. But none of which changes the reality that we need a new mindset because as you just said, what we have been doing is not working. We're running out the clock with incremental changes. Uh, that are not producing the reduction in greenhouse gas emissions at nearly the pitch and pace that's required. Um, and it is, like war, a civilizational threat. And I do remain of the, of the view that the, the point is, like World War II, which was, as you say, exceptional among wars, um, this is going to require a collective transformative grand project mm -hmm. and that's all i'm trying to tap um and and i'm trying to excavate from this story uh this this reminder of what we're capable of and the speed and scale of what we're capable of when we set about that kind of undertaking and I should say, I am, I am enjoying the mischief I can make by being able to reach audiences that I would never have been able to reach uh, if it were it not for the fact that I'm using this metaphor. Yeah, I think that that aspect of it uh, comes through, um, that, there's, that there's something about it that's a little bit sort of sly um, and intentionally narrative driven and and meant to sort of like Trojan horse uh, a, a set of politics that to this point has been seen and even dismissed as like too radical um, you know too 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 fundamentally about like reshaping society to be uh, considered legitimate and you're saying well no there's like we've done this before and, and like I said before I honestly the original outline for the book, Mm -hmm. only had a single chapter about World War II. Mm -hmm. And it was going to be fairly narrowly focused, and it was going to address this, this fact that in, in many of us harbor in the back of our minds this, this doubt, like, can we really transform the economy in the narrow window of time we have available to us? And I thought, oh, you know, I'm going to dig into World War II story because we kind of did. Mm -hmm. and, and then I started to dig in. And 
it started to blow my mind. It was like, oh, this is this is how they rallied the public. Oh, this is how they navigated confederation. Oh, this was the role of young people. This was the role of indigenous people. This was the role of labor. This is how they paid for it. And 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 you know, a couple months in, I was like, oh my goodness, I think the whole book is about World War II. It's a it's a really like valuable mapping of the future that looks at the past. I you know just appreciate all the work that went into uh, providing the world with that map, and also just you know your time today talking to me about it. Thanks very much, Scott.